Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Beth Allen, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're here on the podcast to break down some of the challenges that are in front of employers as it pertains to their group health plan benefits. Today, we're going to discuss some of the recent developments at the federal level, but we're also going to break down some of the state compliance challenges. These states have been quite a bit more active lately, and they're really at the forefront of a lot of employers' discussions on compliance now that so many employees have been changing their workplaces and going remote over the past few years. But before we kick that off, uh, happy February Eve, Chase. It's really hard to believe that we're already a whole month into 2023. I know. It's pretty wild, right? We're here. Happy end of January to you. It always goes so quickly, but Super Bowl Sunday only a week and a half away and plenty to be excited about in Philly and Kansas City. So it's always fun. Yeah, I'm actually a fan of America's team out of Dallas. Uh, We don't make Super Bowl appearances as of late, uh, so I will cheer on one of those teams. Uh, But on the benefits front, there is quite a bit to track as it pertains to employers. I mean, there's always something going on, but really, you know, sometimes we also get hit with quite a bit of things like we did with the whole, you know, global pandemic. Uh, So today we're going to go through some of those recent developments on the federal and state level. And we'll actually go ahead and start with some of the pandemic-related efforts. So I understand that the Biden administration recently made some kind of announcement having to do with the pandemic, right? Yeah, that's right. So just yesterday, January 30th, the Biden administration announced their, what they're calling their present intention. I'm doing air quotes because who knows what that means, but Their intention right now, I guess, and what the direction they want to head is to extend the COVID-19 national emergency and the public health emergency declarations to May 11th of 2023, and then end both emergencies on that date. And so to remind everybody, the COVID-19 national emergency and the public health emergency, or the PHE as it's sometimes referred to, were declared by the administration that was in place back in 2020. And so the emergencies are currently set to expire on March 1st and April 11th, respectively. And this announcement pushes those both to May 11th. But it's it's uh, the announcement and the wind down that's kind of associated with that would align with the administration's previous commitments to give at least 60 days notice prior to the termination of that public health emergency. And so we can kind of see this getting into place. And we I think that's what they mean by present intention. Um, but to, to review, again, high level for group health plans, the end of the COVID-19 national emergency means the end of the outbreak period. And this has been a challenge throughout since it was announced. But that the outbreak period is the period beginning March 1st, 2020, and, and, and extending to 60 days after the announced end of the COVID-19 national emergency. During this outbreak period, certain otherwise applicable ERISA deadlines are basically extended until the earlier of one year um, from when the individual first becomes eligible for relief or the end of the outbreak period. And so those uh, affected deadlines include the 60-day election period for COBRA, uh, the date for making initial or subsequent COBRA premium payments, 
the 30 or 60 day period to request a HIPAA special enrollment. So for births and, and uh, marriages primarily, the date for participants to notify the plan of a COBRA qualifying event or a new disability, and then claims dates, the dates by which participants have to file a benefit claim under the plan's claims procedure or to request internal and external appeals for adverse benefit determinations. And so this has really been a challenge, right? We've kind of explained it as a toll. You toll the period that would normally other, otherwise apply and you get, kind of get this extra year or 60 days from the end of the uh, end of, of the national emergency. So if that end to the national emergency is May 11th, 2023, the 60 day timeframe to determine the end of the outbreak period would be calculated from that date. And so the after that, we can kind of return to business as usual, where we have the deadlines in their standard lengths. So um, this is hopefully providing some uh, to helping solidify when uh, employers can start moving forward. Uh, with respect to the COVID-19 public health emergency, uh, group health plans and insurers have to pay for COVID-19 tests and related services without cost sharing, prior authorization, or other medical management requirements. So that's kind of included here as well. That includes over-the-counter COVID-19 tests that are authorized or approved by the FDA. And health plans have to cover up to eight free over-the-counter at-home tests per covered individual per month. So if anybody wants to get stocked up on those COVID-19 tests, yeah, eight per month. And that seems like a lot, but with households with kids, I know Beth and I both have children that that's been helpful, right? and you don't have to have the physician's order or prescription required. This also relates to vaccines, um, COVID-19 vaccines covered without cost sharing, even when they're out of network and um, uh, who, who have to be reimbursed a reasonable amount for the vaccine administration. So when the public emergency ends, uh, most group health plans have to continue to provide coverage for the COVID-19 vaccines at no cost but only from in-network providers. So that's that'll be a difference after, again, after that April, or sorry, May 11th date. And at that time, federal law does not really prohibit cost sharing for COVID-19 vaccines, including boosters from out-of-network providers. So those are kind of the things we're talking about, the issues that are there that we, I know employers have been struggling with with this outbreak period. It's been a really hard thing to wrap your head around. And uh, we kind of see this winding down now. Absolutely. I think we can all welcome the idea of COVID uh, wrapping or winding down from the standpoint of benefit plans. I do think it's interesting because we will continue to talk about COVID-19 and even the tests and the shots from the standpoint of preventive care. Right. Um, and so there will probably be some guidance that lets us know, you know, when those still have to be offered free of cost uh, because of the preventive care mandate from the ACA. But we do at least move away from this concept of being in the middle of the pandemic and having to offer a certain coverage because of that, right? Right, exactly. So you just talked about quite a bit, right? So there's a lot to track and obviously, you know, shameless plug, we talk about all of these developments in our compliance corner, um, bi-weekly newsletter, you know, we have white papers and things, but from a high level takeaway point, Chase, what do you think employers need to know about this transition that's about to occur? Yeah, just be aware uh, that this is there, that the administration has announced it and, you know, that you're still in that outbreak period. And so if you do get, and I haven't heard of a lot of this happening, but if you do get those requests and they seem old, 
we're still in that time frame through through May 11th and and for 60 days and beyond or beyond another 60 days. So um, we're still there, but um, you know th this is going to be winding down, and there may be some necessary changes to plan documents, participant communications, to ensure you know the materials accurately reflect applicable timeframes and deadlines as we come out of this. If there was anything that was added during that time or communicated, this would be a good time, or at least by May 11th, to sort of say, hey, tell your employees this is winding down, this is no longer available. Um, and then, of course, stay tuned. We don't know exactly what that uh, intention means, so it could change. This is not like something that's formally uh, published or in writing. And so we just leave that little caveat to continue to pay attention. We'll continue to monitor this. That's our job. Um, we we roll that out in our, our newsletters and publications. But again, hopefully the idea is that it, after this, we can return to some type of normal when it comes to these deadlines and these ex and, and no more extensions. I think some type of normal will be a welcome sight for employers. Um, but I do think that one thing we got out of the pandemic that is somewhat of a new normal uh, is this shift of employees and where they might have moved during the pandemic and how they are now, let's say, working somewhere else, maybe from home permanently. OK, so that's obviously uh, created two factors that we also need to address on this podcast. First, this idea of telehealth and just telemedicine generally, um, and then also state compliance issues uh, that can potentially come up where you have employees living somewhere and working somewhere uh, that is not, let's say, where their office was. So on telehealth, uh, didn't we get some kind of movement with the end of the year spending bill? Yeah, and this one has been well publicized and we've covered a lot, but I figure it's a good time to talk about it on the podcast. But the end of year spending bill, which some people just called the omnibus bill, some called it its official title, which is the CAA of 2022. Three, uh, CA is the Consolidated Appropriations Act. We've had a couple of those over the years, but that extends the telehealth plan safe harbor for high deductible plans uh, that were really first introduced in the 2020 CARES Act. So yeah, everybody started spreading out. We needed telehealth to step in. It was causing a problem with HSA eligibility. So we got the CARES Act that kind of said, guess what? If this is a telehealth service, we'll just even though it's, it's uh, covering first dollar coverage. In other words, no out of pocket for the participant. We're gonna say that this is okay for HSA purposes. And so um, the two-year extension that is, is essentially coming out of CAA 2023 continues this relief until January 1st to 2025. And so again, this is helpful, particularly for those employers that are offering a qualified high deductible plan that's meant to be paired with an HSA. Most companies that do that allow the, the employee to contribute to their HSA, usually pre-tax through the employer's cafeteria or section 125 plan. And then the employer usually tax on a little bit of HSA money themselves that they're contributing. And so this really helps the um, helps continue this idea that services going through telehealth are not going to conflict with HSA eligibility. Um, so Again, this extends uh, the relief for plan years starting in 2023. And uh, but sponsors of non-calendar year plans that have part of their 2022 plan year in 2023 have to be mindful of a weird gap that was created here based on how the law was written. And so it's essentially 
there's there's a gap in the protection for the portion of the 2022 plan year that spills over into 2023. And so for that, you may want to talk to outside counsel. We would be surprised if the IRS were to come out and enforce for those months just because of what appears to be kind of a, a drafting glitch in how Congress wrote this. It feels like the intent was to give everybody the continued benefit of, of this uh, flexibility with telehealth. Uh, but that's one wrinkle that we do want to mention. And without additional guidance, the way the law is written, technically those months could still be months where the participant contributions to their HSAs might be subject to uh, applicable income and excise taxes, unfortunately. So a little star there, but mostly positive news, a little asterisk that uh, there's some risk, but mostly positive news that that's been extended. And, and that picks up point solution programs too. We've, we've had that where you know, you might have a vendor that's tacking on a service. Um, and, and so for those, we think if, as long as they're through telehealth, that those can probably fall into this exception as well. Um, but if you do have a point solution program, of course, bring it to your, your NFP advisor or outside counsel, and we can walk through some of the issues that are sort of related to the a point solution program. Yeah, so that's good information. And I agree, it's good news. I mean, I think all of us probably have utilized telehealth um, much more than was utilized um, before the pandemic. And I think that that's something that is good to continue through the future. Uh, now, what are the chances that this relief on HSAs and telehealth availability is something that turns permanent, right? Because they didn't extend it forever. They just extended it for basically the next couple years. So what do you think are the chances on it being a forever change? We all wish they would just do it, right? And it feels like there's support from everyone to do it, uh, but there's also politics involved. Um, there's obviously budgetary concerns. You see for Congress, they have to balance the budget when they pass a law and perhaps getting out past two years creates budgetary challenges. And so we'll have to wait and see. I'd put the odds higher than they were a year ago. If they were willing to extend it for two years, that means you know, generally they think it's a good idea. Um, so that's a strong sign that it's something Congress can agree on going forward. Um, I haven't heard of too much pushback on it, and it seems like both sides of the aisle are, are agree this is a, a helpful thing. So plenty of reasons to do it. We just have to wait and see. I'm guessing it'll be the omnibus bill of 2025 where we get this right, right up to the last second, and then they'll extend it or, or make it permanent. But we'll see. We will see. So let's move on to just this other issue relating to the shifting and moving employees, and that is state compliance issues, right? It used to be that when it came to benefits, we really just weren't worried about the federal landscape of laws like ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code. But now with more states getting into uh, the fray here, we have to worry about complying with the states. So is there any crossover with this whole kind of telehealth idea and state compliance? Yeah, state compliance has become a huge challenge, uh, particularly for bigger employers where, and for uh, in industries where employees can work remotely, right? Sometimes it's impossible. You got to show up at a, a factory or you're only in one state. But um, for telehealth, this is an interesting kind of newer issue, whether there's crossover with telehealth and state compliance. And there is some crossover or potential crossover, I think is what we'll call it. Uh, but there's several states, um, to name four of them, Florida, South Carolina, Wyoming, and Montana. They're looking to make it a little easier to provide services across state lines by expanding licensing reciprocity 
in joining various interstate compacts. And this is particularly related to mental health. So the idea is helpful, right? Trying to help people cross lines, state lines, but still be able to get services. But the states to watch there, I just mentioned, but to pair them together, think of Wyoming and Montana who share a border and access to Yellowstone National Park, right? Um, and then Florida and South Carolina who share a border and access to great beaches. Just think of you know the crossover there. Somebody might choose to just quickly go cross the border to be in Montana where they were previously in Wyoming, uh, but they still need access to some of those services. And so these laws will help facilitate that. In addition, there's a few states that are considering limitations on telehealth related to audio only visits and online prescribing. And so you can see some additional challenges there, right? If it's audio only, if you're prescribing drugs, maybe there are some differences in what the states want to achieve. Uh, those would include Kansas, Florida, and Utah, go Utes. And um, so there's some things to watch there at the state level, even if we have the stability of the federal telehealth extension when it comes to HSA eligibility. States are going to be doing some things there, or at least it appears they are at least talking about it right now, that may throw a little bit of a wrench into how telehealth works across state lines. Yeah, states jumping into all this does make it way difficult, right? Because we go from potentially one standard to 50 plus, I think it's like what, 52 technically, uh, different standards that that employers might have to comply with. And if they are employers with employees in all of the different states, then it becomes that much harder to follow. Um, and so another issue where we see state compliance uh, issues arise has to do with paid family and medical leave, right? A lot of states have jumped into the game here, uh, probably because we don't have a national standard beyond FMLA for leave. Um, and so what other states do we have that are kind of waiting in the wings to create some additional paid family and medical leave requirements? Yeah, and we've, we've talked a little bit this out about on po past podcasts, but it's always good to revisit and uh, paid family and medical leave. Uh, we could see a few more states join. Right now, we have a dozen or so that are currently mandating paid family and medical leave, or PFML as it's sometimes referred to. Um, the list of states that employers have to consider right now include, quickly going through them, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Washington, D.C., Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Puerto Rico, Rhode Island, Virginia, and Washington. Jeez, so, just all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's getting that way. But so, some are newer and, and several like Colorado, Delaware, Maryland don't actually take effect until 2024 and beyond. So if you're hearing that for the first time, don't get too um, freak, don't freak out too much. But uh, and some are even voluntary, like Virginia and New Hampshire. There's no specific requirement for private employers. But nonetheless, it's something that employees, even in those voluntary states or the states that are a few years out here in actual implementation, employees may have awareness and are, are going to start asking about it and employers need to be on their toes. Illinois and Minnesota appear to be the newest ones. Illinois just enacted theirs in the last few days. I don't know if it's been signed by the governor, but it appears that under the Illinois law, employees can take paid leave for just about any reason. And so that goes a little bit further than other states' paid leave programs in that it doesn't limit the employee's use of leave to specific or defined circumstances. And uh, the, the, the Illinois rule actually prohibits employers from requiring employees to provide a reason for their leave or provide documentation or certification in connection with their leave. 
So you can see, and it feels like each state that does this, they go a little further, right? Whether it's the reasons for the leave, which apparently here in Illinois, you can go for uh, almost any reason. And then uh, the, the types of people that you can take leave to care for is very broad and has been broadened to include, you know, uh, grandparents or even people that are, are considered loved ones, even if there's no blood relationship. So you can just really see the broadening of protections here and really challenges the employer uh, because they have to account for all these different states. Minnesota appears to be next. So keep an eye out there for the land of uh, many lakes. Um, and then more than 10 other states have bills pending. And those states include, I, I believe, Indiana, Missouri, Oklahoma, and right here in Texas, Beth, which is kind of surprising, right? Because Texas is usually at the bottom of this list in uh, adopting these types of protections for employees. Um, so that's one other trend to sort of watch is it feels like it started in what we traditionally refer to as the blue states, right? A little left-leaning. And now we're seeing this crossover into uh, some of the traditionally red-leaning states. And so it appears to be less politically uh, driven and more just the state wants to do this. So um, yeah, so at a high level for new um, for new states coming online, there are some helpful things for employers here, and those would include workable equivalent private plan options, you know, whether that's fully or self-insured, that means you don't have to go out and get a specific product, um, or it's not state-run. You might have already accounted for this as an employer, and your leave policy maybe is broad enough that it can be acceptable in one of these states. I mentioned before, but a long runway before implementation, that's helpful for companies to ramp up and plan for. That's usually the case uh, when these new laws come out in states. Reasonable contribution rates and maybe some preemption of local laws, uh, but we'll, we'll have to see how that goes based on employee counts. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, some of the states giving us some ramp up time, obviously, for them to get the program up and running and to kind of relay all the information to employers that they need uh, is definitely necessary for employers and for people like us who have to relay this guidance to employers. Um, but when we get some of these laws, a lot of them are actually silent on the guidance and that kind of leaves employers guessing. OK, so that's kind of what the hard dynamic is with all of these different programs coming online is that, you know, we go from the law being passed with very few details uh, to the state having to provide additional guidance and, and the ramp up takes a bit, right? So Chase, those were all paid family and medical leave laws that you just discussed, but states are also enacting paid sick leave laws. So can you talk about those a little bit and just maybe some major differences between paid family leave versus sick leave? Yeah, so like you said, most of what we've talked about is paid family medical leave, and that's really the right to take time away from work to care for either the employee themselves or their loved ones, right? And to be able to do that and to have job and benefit protections as they do that, and also to be able to you know fund the salary while they're out. And so um, that is kind of all lumped into paid family medical leave when we refer to that sick leave or paid sick leave, and sometimes this is referred to as mandatory accrued paid, paid sick time, is really just requiring employers to allow employees to build up a PTO bank that then serves as, an, as, as, as the ability to get paid while you take time off for sickness. It's not usually as broad. It doesn't always encapsulate family members to take time off. It's kind of the employee's sick time. 
And um, so a little, usually I, I think it's a little bit more simple to think of it that way. Many states are, are already have paid sick leave laws and it often goes down to the city and county levels, uh, particularly in California. California is like the test case for every complicated law, right? And there's a lot of cities and counties in California that have paid sick leave. Uh, but it's also on the agenda in at least eight states this year. The three I wanted to highlight are Kentucky, Hawaii, and Georgia. So again, Georgia, Kentucky, states that generally you wouldn't think they would have these kind of protections now getting in the game here. And so that's just a shift to watch. Um, you used to be able to easily identify problematic states. And I, I say problematic, I'm looking at it from the employer's point of view where they have to do more work to comply Really, it's beneficial to employees, right? And we don't want to ignore that part. Um, but, but yeah, so that's hopefully helps explain some of the difference. And um, paid sick leave is a little bit more prevalent than these paid family medical leave. Absolutely. So, you know, we talked about a lot here and we talked about kind of things that were brought to us uh, from the pandemic, right? And all of that pandemic uh, legislation that we got about what employers had to provide. Um, and now we're moving forward with aspects of what happened during the pandemic, probably um, affecting what we're always going to do, right? Uh, with telehealth and even more so work from home and seeing a lot of the states get even more active. Uh, what does not change, it has not changed, is our team's ability to help provide information to you guys uh, that helps you know what your requirements are. Chase did a lot of talking about states and we have a team member who has been working so diligently on trying to uh, provide white papers that discuss all of the different requirements on states. And so definitely look out for all of that as we put it out. Uh, but otherwise, we're going into another year basically of just compliance and you still having stuff you have to do and us coming alongside of you to help. Um, and so Chase, thanks for talking about all that stuff. And I think that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks everybody for joining.